Folks, I can't possibly communicate to you how excited I am about today's guest. After graduating from the United States Naval Academy at Annapolis, Maryland, Dr. Chuck Messler received a commission in the Air Force. He was the branch chief in the Department of Guided Missiles during the missile crisis of the late 1950s. As the reconnaissance satellites were creating all of their turmoil within the global intelligence community, he was in the big middle of that program as well. Then later, after having completed graduate degrees in business and engineering, he was recruited into the senior levels of the Ford Motor Company in Dearborn, Michigan. And then later, in the 1960s, he had the opportunity to pioneer the development of the first international computer network, which was a forerunner of the World Wide Web. Over the years, he served as a director of numerous public companies and was chairman and chief executive of six of them. And four of those were publicly traded defense contractors serving the most highly classified agencies of our government. But while all of this was going on, folks, he had a personal hobby that continued to grow as time went by. Since he had an intelligence background, with an intelligence background, a background in the information sciences, a background in computer science, Dr. Missler discovered that the founding book of his Christian faith was actually much more than that. Because of its structural design and so many other properties within the text itself, he learned that the Bible actually shows evidence of being written from the perspective of one who transcends space-time. And this led to a personal adventure of passionate exploration that has never died. Around 40 years ago, Dr. Messler started doing a home Bible study. And when I say Bible study, I mean literally a study of the Bible itself, one verse at a time. And I think because the Word of God was the primary focus and not some theme of the week, that's why these Bible studies really took off. As the numbers started to grow, people started bringing tape recorders and passing around these tapes. And this personal hobby of his eventually led to the foundation of a full-time ministry that he calls Koinonia House. Koinonia is Greek for fellowship. And to this day, the goal of that ministry has been to inspire a passionate hunger for the study of the Bible itself and to provide tools along the way to get things started. Well, fast forward 40 years. In the process of studying the Bible without any particular agenda to focus on a particular topic, the events of the world seen on every front, politically, socially, economically, ecologically, technologically, the events of the world on every front rapidly started to align itself, setting the stage for a scenario that's talked about all throughout the Bible. The whole thing, not just Revelation. You can't study the Bible and not see this. So this led to including with each taped Bible study a short little news update, highlighting certain things here and there and pointing out their biblical significance. Well, those tapes eventually made their way to the radio airwaves and then the creation of a radio show called 6640. The Bible is 66 books written by 40 authors, so Dr. Mistler named the show 6640. And with that, the audio tapes, which usually consisted of a single tape for each chapter of the book of the Bible, they were sent out by mail to subscribers, and he accompanied with those a short little update about what's going on in the world that's relevant to biblical prophecy and so forth. And as time went by, audio cassettes then became audio CDs. 
and with the advent of the Internet, audio CDs became MP3 downloads. Or CD-ROMs full of MP3 files accompanied with Adobe Acrobat Notes, PowerPoint slideshows, stuff like that. And you can find all of those at khouse.org. Well, it's now 2009, and Dr. Messler has published audio commentaries for every book of the Bible. And not just once, but several times, and I didn't realize this until recently. He has contributed MP3 commentaries for every book of the Bible to blueletterbible.org, which is an online exhaustive study tool for the Bible. He's published several books throughout the years. The book Cosmic Codes gets into the technical and mathematical properties of the Bible, which proves it was engineered from a hyperdimensional author. The book Countdown to Eternity profiles world events through the lens of Scripture. The book Magog Invasion profiles an invasion of Israel that hasn't happened yet, but it will happen according to Ezekiel chapter 38. The book Creator Beyond Time and Space is a scientific journey into the science of our reality and God's fingerprints all over it. The book Prophecy 2020 is an exhaustive summarizing catch-up book profiling Bible prophecy. The book Learn the Bible in 24 Hours gives beginners a sweeping overview of the whole Bible just to get a feel for it. And the book Alien Encounters, you've heard me reference that one before. It's a book that from its title might sound like it doesn't belong, but one of the moving fronts that is prophetically significant is the New Age Movement. And with that comes along all of these UFO cults. And those of you who are regular listeners to this show already know what that's all about. Well, guess what, folks? All of this biblical education and teaching eventually led to the creation of Koinonia Institute, which is an online college for those seeking college credit for biblical education and scholarship. And Dr. Missler's commentaries are so full of information that they're the course materials. I mean, folks, it's truly amazing what God has done with what started out as a personal hobby from a guy with a technical and scientific background who found himself looking at the Bible and saying, wow, this is neat. This is really neat. Welcome, Dr. Missler, to the program. It's an honor to have you here, sir. <laughs> well, Josh, I have to tell you, after that introduction, I'm anxious to hear what I'm going to say. <laughs> I, that's, I, I can't recall of ever, been, ever being so thoroughly backgrounded. Uh, I, I appreciate the effort you've gone to to pull all that together. Anyway, it's nice to be with you, my friend. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, I just had to. By get the way, that it's out. not, sir. Let's 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 shift gears here a little bit. All right. Uh, if you're mad at me, it's Dr. Missler. But if you're friends, and I think we are, it's Chuck. Okay. Uh, uh, the, the, all that other stuff, all that is ash. It's just uh, uh, for marketing purposes. Uh, we're just a. Guy. Oh, I understand. We're just a sinner saved by grace, and we're we're glad to be uh, to, to to you know if God can use Balaam's ass, he can use Chuck Missler's ass. <laughs> so, so so if you so well, you know, I've I've been subscribed to your commentaries for a while, so by habit, whenever I'm referring to your commentaries to friends, I always refer to you as Chuck. But now that we're on that. the air, well, I want to just clear the air and have you. Let's okay. just keep it personal. You betcha, my friend. All righty. Well, I got to start off by asking you, what was it? That first, I mean, you know, going back decades ago, when I mean, obviously you're a Christian, so you had devotional reading, but what was it that first clued you in on the fact that the Bible itself had evidence inside the text itself that it was of supernatural origin? 
Well, when I was a teenager, it's uh, a hundred years ago, I uh, fell into the hands of the Dr. Harry Rimmer books. Uh-huh. Harry Rimmer wrote a series of, uh, uh, you know, layman-oriented, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, science in the Bible kinds of things. But right. the thing that really hit me between the eyes, and I think at the time I probably was like 12 or 13 years old, maybe a little older, um, somebody gave me a, uh, an analysis of Sir Robert Anderson's treatment of the last four verses of Daniel chapter 9, the famous 70-week prophecy. Now, in today's world, those things are relatively well known. But back then, uh, and uh, I'm 75 now, so it was, well, literally, uh, what, uh, 60 years ago, roughly in round terms, uh, those things were not in print. Uh, I was, uh, a friend of mine gave me uh, a copy of Sir Robert Anderson's book called uh, Coming Prince, which was published originally in 1894. He was head of Scotland Yard, and he was one of the first authors, though, that really unraveled the uh, 70-week prophecy of Daniel. Now, that became so monumental, and not only in my mind, but in general, that in today's world, I, uh, uh, that has been brought back into... You can get a copy of his book in any well-stocked Christian bookstore. I think it comes out by... I forget the publisher, but anyway, it is, it's now readily available. Back in those days, though, it was literally unheard of, except among a you know, relatively small group of scholars. But I remember that hit me in the uh, between the eyes so hard to realize here are four little verses which are tucked away in the book of Daniel, which is part of the Old Testament, mm-hmm. which was translated into Greek some three centuries before Christ's ministry, that actually pins down in advance the exact day that Jesus would present himself uh, to Jerusalem as a king. Mm-hmm. And it comes out to the, to the exact day, strangely enough, when you go through the, uh, the details. And uh, uh, that just uh, that blew me away because you know you, you always hear people, even well-meaning meaning people like, for example, Sean Hannity on on uh, uh, he'll say you can't prove the Bible, but you know he's he's pro Bible in a sense, but he sort of operates in the presumption well you can't really prove it, you just right. got to take it on faith. Uh, so many people have that attitude. Here's something that just blew me away because it's hard, irrefutable evidence. Mm-hmm. Here is a a, a detail, a prophetic detail that's beyond. Uh, and, oh, there are people that will try to twist it away or something. But the, the truth of the matter, if you look at what it says, and it actually happened. In fact, you discover from Luke 19, you discover not only did it happen on that exact day, Jesus at the time held him accountable to know that day. And uh, he, he pronounces uh, blindness upon the nation of Israel because they're, of their failure to recognize that very day. Because he's riding that donkey into Jerusalem, but we all know what we call the triumphal entry. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were singing. Uh, verse 26 of Psalm 100, we're singing Psalm 118. And in the context of the moment, singing that song was regarded as blasphemy by the Pharisees. And uh, and he, he corrects them. He says that these people held the peace of the very stones that cry out. Now, that was a day that was pre-appointed. But the interesting thing that people many, many people miss is God held them accountable. Jesus held them accountable to recognize this thy day. That is his very phrase. And uh, we use that verse uh, casually ourselves. Uh, Blessed is the day that the Lord hath made, we shall rejoice and be glad in it. Right. Is the way Psalm, verse 26 of Psalm 118 reads. But, uh, it, but it, what it was specifically directed to, in a, in a denotative sense, was that specific day, and he held him accountable for that. And uh, that shook me up, actually, by the way, to realize not only is it there, but it's something that we are, we're held responsible for. So I think that uh, that started me to really, I guess that, and I also began to take very seriously Matthew 5:17 and 18 mm-hmm. 
where Jesus says that not one yard or one tittle shall pass from the law till all be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus personally was calling us to uh, take the text very, very seriously. Uh, not just allegorically, not just symbolically, not just in broad terms. No, uh, it was a call to precision, in my, at least in my mind. And mm-hmm. so that, uh, I think, was... Uh, uh, what, and then the other thing, I guess, uh, was probably in those days also that uh, I became sensitive to the fact that when Jesus in uh, Luke 4... He's in the synagogue of Nazareth, and he reads from Isaiah, and he stops as he reads at a comma, closes the book, and says, this day is this prophecy fulfilled in your ears. Well, when you go back and read the passage he was reading from, you realize he stopped not at the end of the sentence. He stopped at a comma. The part that he didn't read is profoundly significant, because the part he didn't read was, and the day of vengeance of our God. Right. Uh, that obviously is yet to be fulfilled. So that caused me to realize that this view that we commonly call dispensationalism was legitimate. That God, uh, Jesus was a dispensationalist. Uh, now, there's a lot of people that abuse that and, and carry some of those things too far, but the truth right. is, I grew up as a teenager with what was a Schofield Bible. It was the original Schofield Bible. It's been it's been amended by in, in 67, I think, but I had the original one before. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so I was very much influenced by the, the what, what uh, Paul instructs Timothy, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I began to realize that there's the Bible divides itself in very uh, deliberate segments, um, that John the Baptist was the, closure, it was the closure of the Old Testament, not Malachi, and so on. Right. Those perspectives I picked up very early in my intellectual uh, career, so to speak, and uh, so as time went on, I remember. I remember my friend Hal Lindsay was shocked when he when I, when I had to mention that when I was in high school, I subscribed to Bibliotheca Sacra, the the, the quarterly of Dallas Theological Seminary, uh-huh. and uh, that's that surprised Hal because he, he's a, he's a Dallas graduate, uh, and they they've become a little more liberal these days. But it, it's traditionally been one of the most conservative of the seminaries, right. and uh, I happened to, I fell into the the influence of a, uh, a Bible teacher by the name of Theodore B. Hacks that was prominent in Southern California in that era, and uh, he's the one that encouraged me to do that, and obviously the quarterly uh, journal of Dallas Theological Seminary was most of the time over my head, but I pick up articles here and there, I just found it, it, it stimulated me in that direction of taking the Bible very, very seriously, and uh, my per, as, you, as you pointed out, my personal uh, intellectual path was uh, directed into the inter- information sciences anyway, so I found that coupling uh, uh, unique. Now, in today's world, interestingly enough, uh, the the frontier in every field of science is now the information sciences, whether you're in physics or whether you're in biology. The real challenge before mankind is to really understand the role and structure and impact of information itself. Uh-huh. In microbiology, it's no longer microscopes and things. It's primarily DNA coding and so forth. And in physics, too, the whole particle physics world is in a dither because it's, uh, there's aspects of it that seem so contrary to logic. And, uh, and Wow. And you look at the Scientific American, and I think it was in uh, the June issue or July issue of uh, about 2005 in the Scientific American, they had an article about the constancy of constants. In other words, the scientists are discovering that the constants of physics may not be constant, that they may be changing a little bit. And uh, they're studying very hard to see if that's true, whether those changes are really changes or not. Mm-hmm. And the point is, though, the point they make, though, is if the constants are changing, and we now know, by the way, they are, but if they're changing... They said that that, mean, that implies that re, what we think of as reality is is uh, uh, nothing. Is it less, real? 
a shadow of a larger reality. Yeah. And when I caught that word in that article, remember, it startled me because that's exactly what the Bible's been saying all along. Right. You know, we tend to use the term the spiritual, the physical and spiritual. The spiritual universe is sort of a a fuzzy, fuzzy thing. We think of Uh heaven as a a fuzzy, fuzzy conceptual thing, but it doesn't have tangibility to us. Well, it's shocking to discover that in today's vernacular, we now discover that the reality that we experience is a simulation. In fact, the digital electrical simulation, and uh, that the real reality is something larger. That we we live in ten dimensions. We can only experience directly four of them, and uh, that's something that Nachmanides uh, determined back in the 13th century by studying the text of Genesis uh, in the Hebrew. So the point is that uh, my whole life, I guess, as as I matured intellectually in my career, which was primarily in the high tech world, uh, I found a, a, a step by step. Uh, convergence, if you will, from from the, the biblical presentations. And, and uh, now, now I find myself in a kind of a strange situation today because some of the things that we begin to realize the text speaks very, very clearly of, has we re, we're discovering, has two aspects. One aspect is that it's changing lives. There are people that uh, we're discovering, when they discover what the text really says, it's saving marriages, it's changing people's Christian walk. It's having incredible positive fruit. Uh-huh. And that's, that's the encouraging side. But the flip side of that coin is uh, we get hate mail, so to speak, from pastors. It oh, turns yeah. out that taking the Bible seriously is surprisingly threatening uh-huh. to many people's um, uh, uh, traditional positions. And uh, it really shocks me to realize that it's just human nature, I think, that by the time someone's gone through seminary and he's invested himself in a traditional environment of some kind, he becomes wedded to that in such a way as to blind himself to to uh, truth in many ways. The only true, uh, true, uh, certain barrier to truth is the presumption you already have it. Exactly. So one of the most difficult things we all need to work at, we in, me included, is to keep our minds open to realize. And by the way, that's the other thing I should mention. People who've known me, as you obviously have, you know, through the 40 years or whatever, through my, you'll discover as I go, I've, there's things I've had to correct where I was wrong. Yeah, I'll right. give you an example of that. I, like most people, used to regard Luke 21 and Matthew 24 and Mark 13 as the Olivet Discourse. Uh-huh. And obviously, Mark 13 and Matthew 24 are verse by verse, with one subtle exception, uh-huh. uh, identical. But Luke 21 is not the Olivet Discourse. It's a it's a different audience on a different occasion with a different emphasis, and uh, as I discovered that, which was only I forgot maybe three or four years ago, the point is my early tapes uh, on on uh, on those subjects back in the early seventies, middle eighties, say, are wrong because uh, I I swallowed the typical view that held by most comment, conservative commentators, uh, the, the discovery that if you look at verse twelve of Luke twenty one, you realize that. Luke is focusing on those events that occur before those that cluster of uh, collection of signs we call the beginning of sorrow. Uh, the point of the time is it's clear that it's, it's it's focusing on a totally different aspect mm. in Matthew 24, and, and that has huge implications eschatologically. There's a the, the rise of preterism. The people that there are a group of people that think that all the prophecies were fulfilled back in 70 AD are simply wrong. It's non-biblical, mm. and it's because and they come to that view because they've collapsed. Those uh, three chapters, Luke 21, Mark 13, into one, they assume that's the, a single discourse, and therefore they have to allegorize it. And by doing so, they lose 
the real information that's in there. There's a concept in optics called uh, 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 oh shoot, uh, resolving power. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you take a cheap telescope and look at a star, you see a bright spot. If you go, uh, you go back to the store and buy and spend thousands of dollars, get a really good telescope, and you look at that same star, you discover it's a double star. In other words, uh, there's a property of optics that, uh, that it's its ability to separate two things that are very close together and realize they're really not the same; they're slightly different. Mm-hmm. The same thing occurs in language. There are things that we think are synonyms, but they're not quite synonyms. And uh, uh, that's exactly what happened with uh, Luke 21. It's not all of the discourse. It's similar, but it's direct. If, if that's what I'm call, what, what I'm saying about all this, prattling on here, is the call for precision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you use precise precision in your definitions, suddenly these paradoxes and confusions evaporate. The fog lifts. One of the examples of that is the is the is this uh, expression that Matthew uses. Mm-hmm. He uses an expression, the kingdom of heaven. And, oh, uh, yeah. Mark, yeah. Mark, Luke, and John, in many of the same similar situations, they use the term kingdom of God. And uh, Matthew is the only guy that uses the term kingdom of heaven. And if you pick up any commentary, and I've looked at over 50 of them, mm-hmm. uh, they everybody assumes that they're synonymous, that Matthew just happens to use a phrase that's a little more Jewish, because mm-hmm. he was a Levi. Right. Well, it turns out that's not correct. Matthew uses kingdom of heaven 33 times, but five times he uses kingdom of God. In fact, in one case, he uses the two terms adjacent to each other. And I've actually seen some commentators say, well, that proves they're synonymous. No, it doesn't. It proves that one is denotative, one is connotative. In other words, kingdom of God is an all-inclusive term of everything outside God himself. It includes the creation long before the earth, Mm. the angels and so forth. Because the angels were first early, the earth the earth was made next, and the universe later, believe it or not. But anyway, that's the scriptural perspective. Yeah. What's interesting, though, what Matthew does, he takes a term that has been mistranslated, actually. The kingdom of heaven, We, when we hear that, we tend to confuse that with heaven. The kingdom mm-hmm. of heaven, the kingdom of the same thing. No, no, no. It turns out that it's a genitive of source, not a genitive of apposition. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, I say I'm Chuck from Idaho. Uh-huh. There's no equivalence of me in Idaho. It simply means I came from Idaho. Right. Idaho has no implication. Uh, it doesn't gain anything from Chuck. You follow me? Uh-huh. In other words, that's a genitive of source. A genitive of apposition is, is a case where you apply an equivalence of some kind. You with me? Right. You know, like uh, 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 that car is, is uh, well, I'm using some bad examples. Anyway, the point is, what the way that should be see the in Hebrew and in German the of and the word from are the same word. If I say I'm Otto von Habsburg, that means I'm Otto from a place called Habsburg, but it also becomes my name. Mm. But see that's a genitive of source. It's where I came from. And it doesn't imply that Habsburg is anything equivalent to Otto, you follow yeah. me? Right. It doesn't work it's not that it's not a two a two way street. So the point is the way that should be translated, and it is so translated in the International Standard Version that's coming out, by the way. I'm on the review committee, and that's why I know that. The point is that the, uh, the kingdom, what Matthew is really saying, he's speaking of the kingdom from heaven. And as he does that, it turns out what he's talking about is the kingdom on the earth. There's a lot of misunderstanding about that. Mm. Um, there are four unconditional covenants in the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant. And every every benefit we enjoy, even as Gentiles, derives from that, strangely. Right. The second covenant is the land covenant. Some place people call it the Palestinian covenant, but that's using the language of their enemies. I'll call it the land covenant, right. Genesis 15 and 17. 
And uh, the third covenant is the Davidic covenant, Second Samuel 7. And that is also unconditional. I have been premillennial since, way, since the beginning, frankly. Right. But I have to tell you honestly, I never realized until a few years ago that the millennium, as we call it, from the Revelation 20 passages, uh-huh. is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. I never tied that together. Uh-huh. And, uh, and that shook me up to realize the implications of that. Well, I had pastors say, well, that's the Old Testament stuff. No, 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 no. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, when Gabriel visits Mary to, uh, to announce the birth of Christ, right. he says that he is going to sit on the throne of David. Uh-huh. Now, the throne of David did not exist in those days. Rome was running the place. Right. And it never existed during his lifetime. So you either have to shrug that off as just a, a, a idiom, or it, it's something yet to happen. Well, you move along. When you get to the ascension, um, when Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, when he's about to ascend, the disciples ask him, are you not going to set up the kingdom? And he says, it's not for you to know the timing. He doesn't say he's not going to do it. In fact, he confirms that he's going to do it. Uh-huh. When you get to the pivotal point in the book of Acts, Acts 15, we have the uh, Council of Jerusalem. And the big debate that's going on has to do with what does a Gentile have to do to become saved. Uh, there's a big controversy about that. But the, the underlying current also included a second question. What's to become, if, if, if a Gentile doesn't have to become a Jew to become saved, then what's to become of Israel is the question. Well, right. James himself, in Acts 15, quotes, in, in resolving that dispute, he quotes from Amos chapter 9, verse 11, that after, after the Gentiles get called in, he says that they're, after this, uh, he's going to rebuild the tabernacle of David. So he mentions the very, they use the, and by the way, the tabernacle of David, don't confuse that with the temple of Solomon. Okay. The tabernacle of David is the palace of the king. Okay. Ooh. And, and what's, it, it, see, see, suddenly, the, suddenly you begin to realize uh, that the, the, the king, the, the kingdom that we're talking about is one of five kingdoms. It's the fifth of five kingdoms detailed in Daniel chapter two. We all know the story of the big multi-metal image, right? Right. Gold, silver, brass, and iron. And how that's Babylon, Persia, Greece, and whatever. And uh, there's some debate about the whatever because uh, we've always thought it was the Roman Empire, but it may indeed be the Ottoman Empire. That's a whole other thing I don't want to get to here. Right. But the point is, the fifth empire that God himself is going to set up on the earth is going to destroy the previous ones. And, and uh, it's, it's, But at the point, it's an, it's an empire that Dan, uh, Daniel talks about from about verse 40 on in, t- in Daniel chapter 2. The point is, is that that uh, 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 kingdom is the fifth of five kingdoms on the earth. It has a capital. It has, it has subjects and so forth. And uh, uh, so, uh, Well, Jesus has never sat on David's throne. That's right. And he's, yeah, he's, he's, still, he's, he's on his father's throne at the moment. Right. But so those are prophecies that haven't been fulfilled. And that, one of the things that's always really puzzled me is how anybody uh, prior to 1948 could think they were living uh, in the end times because there was no Israel. And all well, of the prophecies know, are Israel-centered. Oh, by the way, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, during the World War II, uh, there were a lot of people that thought Hitler was the Antichrist. But there were a couple of guys on the radio, uh, M.R.D. Hahn and H.A. Uh-huh. Ironside in those days, that said that no matter how it looks, Israel, uh, that Hitler cannot be the Antichrist simply because, and the reason was an interesting one, was because Israel is not in the land. Right. And they were laughed at. Well, they're just, they, these are these biblical fundamentalists. They were shrugged off. 
Mm-hmm. But their point was that uh, if you understand prophecy, Israel has to be in the land. Well, obviously that debate should have ended in 1948. And I remember that vividly because that was about the time that I was beginning to be conscious of some of these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so the uh, that debate should have ended because Israel's there. Go look, handle and see. In fact, the David, <laughs> ben, David Ben-Gurion, using the Bible as his authority, mm-hmm. named the Jewish homeland Israel. And so, uh, anyway... Uh, uh, oh, so I just remember when you went... When you did a study uh, back in 96 or 97, I forget which, whichever it was, um, I used to listen to the commentary tapes as I worked because I, at the time I had a job that was data processing so I could have a headset on, and I would go through four or five tapes in a day. And uh, I ran a... <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, you know, the, the job I had, I, I needed some peace, Chuck. And what an infusion! What an infusion! But uh, I went through Ezekiel thirty-eight, and uh, I thought, well, that's an interesting interpretation of Ezekiel thirty-eight. This is back in the, the late nineties. In yeah, two thousand seven, uh-huh. I turn on because I do this radio show. In two thousand seven, I pull up FoxNews.com, and there's a big picture of uh, Vladimir Putin and Ahmadinejad standing side by side with big grins on their face, waving, and it says, Russia builds alliance with Iran. And I thought, well, I found out Ezekiel 38 said that was going to happen 10 years ago. So that was kind of my <laughs> incredible, uh, wow, I'm actually seeing it happen. I can't believe it. I knew it then, but now I see it. And it just blew me away. And uh, the, the a lot of the stuff that's going on, see, there's a balance, a balancing act that my co-host and I, Snooper, we've been trying to take, because for the most part, this is a secular show that we're doing, but um, it's been very difficult to keep it secular in uh, recent uh, months, because there's so much going on that implies that uh, everything that the Bible said was going to happen is about to happen, and we, we both wind up going, it's kind of like a seesaw. There's one moment where we're focused on occupying until he comes and doing everything we can to get the truth out, to get people fired up and mad, and then uh, we get too angry, which is a form of helplessness because we're, we're, if we're Christians, uh, the Bible makes it very clear that he who lives in you is greater than he who lives in the world, and these things must come to pass um, it, it's a balancing act, and it's one of the most difficult things I've tried to do is how do you occupy until he comes while at the same time knowing that he's coming and to be at peace with everything around you that's falling apart while at the same time occupying as though he's not coming so that we can do what we, needs to be done when it needs to be done. I mean, am I making any sense? No, no, I hear you. No, it's a yeah. very practical pr- problem we're all facing. Yeah. But you know, something something's kind of interesting. One of the things, obviously, that we've become aware of, my wife and I have just finished a book, it's, we think it's the most important thing we've ever done, called The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, which gets at this whole issue of the what we it might call the kingdom perspective. Mm-hmm. We discovered, much to our amazement, that there are Chinese congregations that are buying our books in volume for their leadership. And we thought, what's going on here? We discovered that the church in China is heavily influenced by the writings of a Dr. Timothy Lin, L-I-N. Mm-hmm. Um, he just passed away a few weeks ago at 98, so he's a fixture in the fundamental world, really. He, he taught at several seminaries here in the U.S., but his primary writing was in China, in, in, in Chinese. Well, the Chinese have discovered that tra- translating the stuff into English uh, falls apart because it's, it's it just doesn't work for some reasons. 
and they discovered our book, which they regard, strangely, as a paraphrase of Dr. Lin's teaching. That's what, why it became so popular. Mm-hmm. And we also discovered a couple of things, that in China, English is a required second language, and the Christians there uh, are, tr- are hungry for English biblical materials to, to get a double hit, to get to learn more, but also to practice their English. So that's why there's a demand here, apparently. So we've stumbled in. There are more Christians, English-speaking Christians, in China than the entire population of the United States. And so we suddenly realized wow. that we, we've, we've stumbled into a market we didn't even realize existed. But the point I'm really getting at is another point. In China, they regard themselves as being in what they call the kingdom of preparation. And they aspire to, they realize that there are responsibilities and opportunities and blessings in the coming kingdom will derive from what they do here. They call what we call the millennium, they call the kingdom of inheritance. And they live their lives in a manner that everything that they do is going to impact their eternity in the kingdom of inheritance. And uh, they smile at the U.S. Christians, American Christians, right. because they regard us as spiritually immature, that uh, they pray for the American church. The way they pray for it is they pray for persecution, Uh-oh. because they believe that the church won't really mature, because it's become, um, it's, it's the Laodicean church. Yes. We're rich and have need of nothing, is the attitude. They, they, uh-huh. see, they see us probably far more clearly than we see ourselves. Uh-huh. And they and they're doing this not out of hostility; they're doing this out of love. They really believe that the American Christians won't grow up until they face the reality that uh, you know that uh, the world is at odds with Christianity, you know, right. and so forth. And so well, uh, there's uh, a lot, been a lot of evidence of that here. And, yeah, uh, well, the, and it's going to increase. Yeah, it's yeah. going to increase. Uh, we're 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 in a battleground, not a playground. Yeah. In America, we we don't really relate to it too well, and that's what's so fascinating to me. Since we published this book and, start, and since we've really started to become sensitive to what all, what's pro- commonly called the kingdom perspective, uh-huh. um, uh, it fascinates me is that on the one hand, we see it having incredible fruit within congregations. People, marriages are healed. People are getting serious about their walk. We, 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 my wife and I get deluged in favorable mail every day. Uh-huh. But at the same time, uh, relationships we've had with pastors we've known for 20 years have gotten strained, uh, where they, 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 uh, uh, many of them, um, first of all, we get, to, we get into these, dis- I get, uh, we just had one at the airport, we landed at the airport, and we, a couple of old friends, we got together and chatted, uh, catching different planes, and one of them was, uh, was attacking our book, you know, as if it was some kind of big mistake. Uh-huh. And I said, have you read it? Or actually, it wasn't me. It was my sidekick. He said, "Have you read his book?" And the guy, sort of, blood, well, no, he hadn't. So, in other words, he's dealing on hearsay. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, I pointed to him. I said, "If you, you know, you, if you haven't read the book, you can speak about it only as the blind speak of color. You heard some things, but if you haven't read it for yourself, you know what you're talking about." And he well, I know that he, he was embarrassed because he realized that he didn't have a leg to stand on. Here he's, you know, attacking the doctrine in the book that he hasn't read. You see. Well, and, it's, it's, it continues. I, I mean, the same. After reading your book, Alien Encounters, I did somewhat of a, I did my own 90-minute podcast that was kind of a summary of what I learned from that book. Uh-huh. And, uh, well, at YouTube, uh, you have to segregate everything in, into 10-minute segments because they don't accept anything longer than 10 minutes. 
Uh-huh. The whole thing's at my website, Uncut, but to get it at YouTube, I had to segregate it into 10-minute segments, and it's amazing. All of the attacks are at part one. They haven't listened to the series yet. All of the uh-huh. attacks are at part one. <laughs> right. They haven't listened exactly to anything. Right. They don't even know where I'm going with the topic. And I'm right, getting it from right. both sides. You've got the Christians who think I'm going to go in one direction and they start attacking me. And then you've got the secularists who attack me also from a completely different perspective. And none of them have even listened to it yet. Well, and, and part of it, there is some deception involved. Let me, let me be honest about that. Mm-hmm. It turned out that uh, Cochelle Peterson, the number one design firm, uh, designed the cover of that book. They were did it for Harvest House because Harvest House was going to was going to publish it, and uh-huh. they paid a handsome price to have that cover designed. And then they saw our manuscript. They panicked because they didn't want to get into the controversy of Genesis six and all that. Uh-huh. So they asked to get out of the contract. And I said, "No problem. I won't hold you a contract you don't want to get into." So we well, Cashel Peterson purchased their work product back from Harvest House and gave it to us as a gift because they they had fallen in love with us in the meantime in terms of our ministry. In fact, John Peterson, of Cashel Peterson, now it serves on our board. But the point I'm getting at is. What I, I was planning to have a forward by one of the astronauts, 13 different astronauts had, had made comments publicly about uh, encountering UFOs during their missions. Uh-huh. And I thought that would be a great kind of... But then I got a better idea because I happened to strike up a friendship with uh, Douglas James Marr. And Doug Marr is well known among publishers as the father of the New Age because he was the channeler for Shirley MacLaine. He was he was in the New Age thing. But what the New Age, they all know his name for that reason. What they don't know is that on November 9th of 1990, uh, he became a Christian. And I happened to run into him and get to know him. And so I got a different idea. I had him do the forward to the book. Now, that means nothing to the average reader, but to a New Ager spots it right away because they know him as... As a, you know, one of the, in fact, Publishers Weekly attributes the, the, the craze in New Age books to his, his book, A Voyage to, A Voyage to the New World, kind of thing. Uh-huh. Well, that, so you, you, you find the book looks like, the cover looks like it, and the forward, it, you won't find it in the Christian section, you find it in the New Age section, in the books, in, in Noble, you know, in whatever, uh, whatever uh, bookstore. Yeah. Bookstore you use, yeah, exactly. Well, that crazy book has brought more people to Christ because, it's the kind of book you can give an unsaved relative at Christmas or something because it looks like you know just aliens and UFO. It, it's got a uh, uh, you know an appeal that is. In fact, when you go on Amazon.com, there's about 17 book reviews. 15 are favorable. Don't bother with those. The two that are fascinating to reading, these uh, they are just absolutely angry. This one guy says, "I had to read nine chapters before discovering this was a Christian book." It was really upsetting. <laughs> To be honest with you, that was that was the, the deliberate strategy. Yeah. And, uh, By the time you get to that point, it's too late. <laughs> yeah. Well, then they, then again, in chapter ten, they get into the whole Genesis six thing, and they, by then they're really hooked. Yeah. And by then they really get in. Wow, this is really in the Bible, and here's why, and so forth. And uh, they discover that even the secular researchers, uh, Jacques Vallée of France and, and J. Allen Hynek of American, uh-huh. both had come to the conclusion that these things are demonic. So yeah. the point is. Um, that book has caused more people to come to Christ. It's it, it, uh, it's become what it's been a third or fourth printing. The latest version has uh, the what we call the smoking gun and all that. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it, it's it, it's every Christmas season. It's oh, it's not a bestseller, but it certainly has had an incredible track record of people coming to Christ who probably wouldn't have uh, woken up to that any other way. So, that well, the thing that intrigued me about it is, see, I was uh, in. in See, before I started taking the Bible seriously, and before I started taking my my Christianity seriously, I was one of the Christians 
who was asleep and was trying to marry all of the different views that I had into one big thing. It's, it's, it's kind of like when you hear a Christian say, well, I believe that God created the universe, but I believe in evolution too. Well, it's the same kind of thing. See, I grew up watching uh, Star Trek, and I just loved the idea of the human race eventually growing up and uh, leaving the earth and building relationships with people all over the universe. And my attitude was, well, if God could do it here, he could do it wherever he wants to. But then when I started taking the Bible seriously in the late 90s, I noticed there were a couple of uh, huge conflicts. One, uh, the human race isn't going to mature. It's going to get worse. It, it is uh, dematuring, if I can use that word. And the second yeah. thing is, if you if you get the plan of salvation and map it all out and see how it, how it works, it, it, it's, it's a human-only plan. So yeah, I, I yeah, really, life, yeah, that's one of the demons. People don't think that through. If there's if yeah. there's life on another planet, you've got a choice to make. Right. It's either sinful or it's sinless. Well, if it's sinless, that that that, you know, that doesn't. The, the point is, if, it, if it's sinful, then Christ had to die there too. And that, you, 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 that turns out to be the fork in the road that you get. You have to stumble at anyway. Uh, setting aside the probabilities and the the, the, lack, the unlikelihoods and the, the so-called Drake formula and all of that. Uh, the, 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 the sin question still looms as, as an issue. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so it's, uh, it, it, it's, you're, you're, you're right on target. This is that Somebody right. should send a copy of your book to the Vatican because I saw on the news this morning the Vatican calls experts to study the possibility of alien life and its implications for the Catholic Church. Well, and I thought, oh Catholic, boy, they're, they're, they're just waiting. <laughs> Yeah, the Catholic Church got bigger problems than that one, but yeah, I hear yeah. you. Know, and that's a, and I don't want to offend any Catholics, but it's time. You know, the Catholics have not discovered the Bible is their first problem, and and so that's yeah. a, it's a you know, there that has a whole history that any serious Catholic needs to investigate. Yeah, it's a, my my friend Mike Gendron has an incredible book, Preparing Catholics for Eternity, mm-hmm. that they should track they should track down because. Uh, they, they 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 have some exciting discoveries ahead of them if they if they uh, want to take the time to dig into that. But uh, no, the the fact that they uh, the Catholic Church seems to have endorsed evolution and all that is bizarre, and yet not surprising when you really understand where they're coming from and their their history and so forth. Uh, it, it, it really comes back down to the basic the issue of authorities. Where do they get their authority? And their authority is is self generated. The authority of the church is the church. In contrast to uh, the biblical believer who has the Bible as his authority, and even though many people have different views of some aspects of that, it's still a an anchor to, into into the into the reality of Christ Himself, and that's what it's really all about. So, Let me share something with you. This is just a personal little fun thing okay. for me. Go, go for it. Go for it. Uh, this week on uh, your commentary that you published on First John. You got into hyperspaces again and brought up the, the <laughs> Mr. Flat. Well, I've always loved that because it perfectly explains uh, the fact that the hyperspaces explains so many paradoxes in my mind. But there's one. You're absolutely right. You're really right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, Abbott, uh, uh, back in 1905, I think it was, he published that little book called Flatland. Mm-hmm. And that turns out to be an illuminating little piece uh, in this area, I've discovered that just teaching people the Bible, it's helpful to divert a little bit and give them a little bit of background on what we really know today about hyperspaces. But go mm-hmm. ahead, I'm sorry. Well, no, there's one little aspect of it that, that blew me away, because uh, I have a friend that I was explaining the, the concept of hyperspaces, and the only way you can do it is to go backwards, is, is to say, yeah. well, what would it be like if, you're, uh, if you had a three-dimensional cube, 
and you were trying to communicate to a universe of two-dimensional people, um, they would not understand what you're talking about. I mean, you could even put it in their universe. They're only going to see a two-dimensional representation of it. The only way you can let them see all of it at the same time is to actually unfold it into two dimensions so they can see it. And then um, a hypercube, which is a mathematically put-together cube of more than three dimensions, if you unfold that out, and there's several pictures of that, it looks like three-dimensional cubes that are in the same shape of uh, a, uh, a flat square that's unfolded. And I, I remember showing this to a friend of mine uh, named Darrell several years ago, and he looked at it, and he said, that's that's a hypercube uh, unfolded into three dimensions so we can see all of it once. And I said, yeah. And he said, how do you put it back together? And I said, well, you can't in three dimensions. You'd have to have knowledge of an extra dimension to put it together. But, and then he looked at it and he said, yeah, but each each piece of it is complete. And as he said that, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I thought, that's the Trinity. We can't put the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit back together in our minds. That's why it's caused so much controversy throughout the years. Because it's well, just one, it just, it, it blew me a lot. But here we have a, a, a superior being. It's built, it's built into the Hebrew language, by the way. Yeah. Something, it's worth knowing a little piece here that you might be interested in. Do you know that in Hebrew, a plural is three or more? In English, a plural is two or more, right? Right. Uh, in, in, in Hebrew, they have the concept of what's, of a dual. The only place we have a dual in English I'm aware of is the word both. You know, if I said, all my friends came over last night, both of them. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it's only two. Right. You know, yeah. Well, in Hebrew, <laughs> a plural implies three or more. And what's interesting, that's just the grammar. Mm-hmm. And when you see the word Elohim, Bereshit bara Elohim, the opening verse in the Bible, uh, Elohim is uh, the I am ending of the masculine noun is a plural. Mm-hmm. Like cherubi, a cherub is singular, cherubim are plurals. A seraph is singular, seraphim is a plural. Well, uh, uh, Elohim is a plural noun, and uh, but it's, it means that means it's three or more, not two or more, three or more. Wow. And what's interesting, every place it appears in the Hebrew grammar is technically an error because it's used grammatically as if it was a singular. The sentence structure is singular. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but and, the noun's and, and, plural, three or more. Yeah, exactly. And then when you get to the word echad, where it says, you know, the, our Lord is one, the word echad actually means a unification. It's one in the sense of having been unified. But, uh, see, the reason we have trouble with that concept, we can't visualize, for example, uh, three partners who completely agree. Right. You know, uh, if you visualize a corporation, which is a legal entity before the law, if it has three partners that totally agree, you've got a, a, a at least clumsy, but a model of what we're talking about. But the whole idea of the Trinity, turns out, when you start studying the Trinity, you discover that that word as such doesn't appear in the Old Testament, or even right. that matter. But it is all through the uh, Old Testament. And that can be, uh, you get into some very embarrassing discussions with some of the rabbis on that. Because oh, really? it actually emerges out of the, the grammar itself. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So, uh, for what it's worth. Yeah, that, I just found it entertaining because I, I tried to put together a fictional conversation between uh, the people of Flatland. If, you know, if, <laughs> if, 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 uh, pe- if people of Flatland were to see uh, a three-dimensional cube, how would their conversation go down? And as I put it together, it, it hit me that the conversation they would have 
about the three-dimensional cube is identical to the conversation that Christians have had for the past 2,000 years about the Trinity. You've oh, yeah, you probably find that, that. You know, that they, over, they go too far in one direction or the other. Well, in Flatland, you probably start having uh, uh, excommunication. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so forth. Yeah. For people with heresies uh, like these, but it's it's uh, you know this has been fun. This has been fun. I uh, I appreciate your enthusiasm. It's nice to see that that uh, some of these fruits are bearing fruit. That's this is this is a good feeling. Well, I was going to ask you. Uh, the, the show goes on for another hour. If you'd like to stay, you're welcome to. Oh, I, I uh, wish like I to... could. I happen to have no. I, I I have been away, and I just got back from Israel, and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, this is my la- uh, only day here because I have some staff a staff meeting that starts here in about seven eight minutes. So I, I I don't have the second hour available this time. We could do it some other time. I'm okay. heading for New Zealand. be heading for New Zealand tomorrow for about three weeks. So I'll be out of circulation. My wife and I are taking a. A vacation, combination fake uh, vacation, and uh, uh, anyway, in, in New Zealand. So I'm I'm cramming the uh, meetings and, and delinquencies of mine uh, to get them done before I leave. So no, I, I I don't have the freedom to, to, to spend more than the hour than this first hour here. But I appreciate the invitation, and I look forward to doing that on another occasion. Uh, well, that, we're just going to have to do that, Chuck. We're just going to have to do that. I appreciate you, sir, and uh, thank you for coming on and been and being with us for an hour. I, and, I, uh, I would welcome. By the way, I would love to have a copy of this if you if you could send that to me. It would mean a great. Uh, a copy of what? You oh, this it. show. Okay, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I'll send well, it to Tracy. It. If you would, that I would be, I would appreciate that because okay. the the introduction you did is one of the best summaries I've ever seen. And, uh, <laughs> well, I wanted to so, catch everybody up because they don't well, know that I've been listening to you for fifteen years. <laughs> that, that's, that's well. It, it certainly shows that you've done a lot. That's why I'm so flattered by it. You've done so much homework. I'll have to tell you though, the funniest introduction I've ever had. I've inter- been introduced a lot to large audiences by many different people, mm-hmm. but uh, there was a, uh, once with Bill Perkins, who heads up Compass. They were it had a huge conference, probably two thousand people in the audience, uh, and and when he, he, there's a series of speakers. Then he got when he got to introducing me, he just went up to the microphone, <laughs> and instead of introduction, he simply said. How many of you can remember what you were doing when you heard your first Chuck Missler tape? <laughs> and and all, almost all the hands go up, and I was laughing so hard. It was sort of like, where, what were you doing when John F. Kennedy was shot? Yeah. You know, in other words, it was such a traumatic moment, you must certainly remember it. I, I was laughing so hard, I could hardly go on with my talk. You know, now that but, you mention uh, it, I remember where I was, too. And I remember what I was doing. It was the Mars well, case. See, see, that's, that's, that, any, any psychologist will tell you, that's evidence of trauma. <laughs> <laughs> so, in any case. Uh, <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, it's, it's, it's good talking to you one-on-one like this. It's been a real Josh, pleasure. Any, Josh, any time. I appreciate, I appreciate you. I appreciate your enthusiasm. And I look forward to the next occasion. Uh, it'll be great fun, my friend. Thank you. All right. You take care, sir. We'll be praying for your ministry. I covet that. God bless you. you. Bet.